kids, this is Extra Risk, where we give you just a little bit more of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Princeton, with an instrumental of their song called Andre. Folks, today we finally premiere Beyond Kink Camp Part 2, the conclusion of a long-form story uh, by yours truly, but let's give credit where it's due. Our editor, Mr. Jeff Barr, has worked like a madman on this one. If you haven't heard Beyond Kink Camp Part 1, I recommend you listen to it because this one might not make so much sense if you haven't. And as usual, keep in mind that, you know, it's an extremely explicit story, so... (laughs) Take all necessary precautions. And with all that said, let's dive on in. This is Beyond Kink Camp, Part 2. In the dream, I see his eye again, right in front of mine, and beautifully black, like outer space. And I want to float into it, like I've become so small again, I might just fit in. It does seem like we shape our lives to fit our stories, like we're drawing and then redrawing roadmaps to get to the endings that we're hoping for. But with all that redrawing, We should also be re-asking, what is the ending I'm hoping for? See, as strange as it sounds, the sex I had with Zach reminded me how devoutly Catholic I was as a kid. That's when I learned the Greeks had a term for ordinary time. That's chronos. But for extraordinary moments, they called that kairos. Well, the early Christians picked up on this. They said, what Kairos really is are those moments in life when suddenly you're attuned to the fact that God is all around. So it's like you've broken through to a higher dimension. So after having sex with Zach, I felt like I was getting clearer about the fact that in the stories I'm living into, the endings I'm hoping for, the place I'm trying to get to, is Kairos. Well, now, he had just shown me that when it came to kink, my limits were not what I thought they'd been. It had been uncomfortable, but also Kairos. So I went to Amsterdam to see how much further I could go, to see how much discomfort I could take and what might be on the other side. But I was like the fool in the uh, 
tarot card, you know, looking toward his destination while he's stepping off a cliff. Sex that night with Zach uh, ended when I vomited about uh, like a quart <laughs> of water all over the floor. I said, sorry, master. And Zach just dropped the role playing entirely. He said, no, no, you went so far. Here, let me take care of you. And he did, laying me down, washing me. And then he stayed there, naked, in bed with me for an hour and a half, two hours. He said, now how did you feel when you heard me opening the door? (laughs) And he went on asking about every moment like that. He wanted to experience all my memories and feelings, and then to share his. At one point, we were just face-to-face, you know, just inches from one another. And I felt like I was finally looking directly into his kindness. He'd never been much of a little China boy. He was more like the blissful Buddha to me now. And it was always so surprising to me how he would explore my stories out loud. He said, what a trip for you. Beginning your 40s, storytelling led to risk, and risk led to kink camp, and kink camp led to me. But what you did at that camp was just a little taste Now, you know what BDSM can really be. I think you've got a big surprise waiting in Amsterdam. Two weeks later, 30,000 feet over the Atlantic Ocean, I posted on that website where I first met Zach. Hey, everyone. Uh, Anything kinky happening in Amsterdam? Within seconds, replies started coming in. Seriously? Wasteland is on Saturday. So I'm Googling around. Penthouse, Playboy, Time Out. Everyone said the same thing. That Amsterdam's biannual Wasteland party is, without comparison, the kinkiest event on Earth. Well, the first image I saw was of uh, a woman doing a rocket-style dance on top of a possibly dead, nude, elderly man lying on a bed of foot-long nails. So I had a whole week in town, but this was happening my last night there. So if I didn't have the breakthrough that Zach had been predicting my first few days in town, I 
mean, surely something would happen at this circus. But the ticket price was outrageous. I simply could not afford it. And the name of the party left a bad taste in my mouth. Well, of course I bought a ticket. Well, my first two days, my mind was on the storytelling show that I'd come to do at the International Documentary Film Festival. And the people could not have been lovelier. But by day three, the show was over. And I was on vacation. I had my own hotel room. I had a gay bathhouse a few blocks away. And I had my iPhone lighting up with dozens and dozens of new faces every day. And my mind was on ass, ass, and ass. Because there was the big macho Italian guy who kind of sounded like an elephant when he came. And the Indonesian kid who would flirt and push me away and flirt and push me away and flirt till I went away. And the other Indonesian guy who... He might have been old enough to be my father, but he had sex in this amazing kind of slow-mo Tai Chi kind of way. And there was the Japanese guy who was too shy to say a word, but was like a Cirque du Soleil contortionist in bed. And this Pakistani guy with the penis the size and shape of a Chipotle burrito. Every day it was just marijuana, pizza, M&Ms, sex, Marijuana, pizza, M&M, M&M sex, sex, marijuana, marijuana pizza, pizza, M&M, 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 sex, sex, marijuana, pizza, pizza, M&M, pizza, M&M, pizza, M&M, pizza, 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 And the pizza wasn't even that good. Well, on the last day... I woke up feeling like I was clawing my way out of my own grave. I was looking out the window at the canal thinking, Kevin, what about the Van Gogh Museum? The Anne Frank House? The Cathedral of something or other? It's your first time outside the Americas? And you're acting like a sex... I didn't want to finish the sentence. And there wasn't time anyway, because someone was coming over for sex. So, Jin was Malaysian. Very gracious person. But threw me for a loop when he sat down on the bed and he said, could we just have coffee? I'm trying to learn to just talk to men. I'm a recovering sex addict. (laughs) So, there was the term. And to think, this felt like kind of a radical idea to me at this point. I mean, fuck the cathedrals. I could have just been visiting bars or cafes in town to have conversations. Well, the two of us walked around the canals and... I wanted to know about Jin's coming around to where he was with sex. Ask how he felt about his 12-step program. He really didn't want to answer all that. 
So I'm just watching him talking and thinking, you know, it's like his arrival in my journey is just a sign that (laughs) I could be asking these questions of myself. Then after the date, I needed a nap before the wasteland party. And so, once again, I let my head submerge into the pillow. And my phone started glowing right next to my face. There was a huge, goofy smile beaming at me. Little Chinese guy. Now, I'd never seen someone on one of these gay hookup apps looking so joyful. He said, I'm Simon. Want to play? I said, don't, 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 Kevin. And then another face pops up on the phone. He says, hey, you look like fun. And he did too. He was right in the middle of a hilarious laughing fit in in the picture on the phone. And just as cute as a cartoon puppy. Well, when I learned that the guy writing to me at the same time as Simon was named Alvin and that Alvin was in town from Bali with a friend named Theodore, well, clearly these people had to be in my bed. Now, friends have said, Kevin, you cannot include Alvin, Simon, and Theodore in a story. No one will believe you. Well, fuck that. It happened. Except that uh, Theodore couldn't make it because he was seeing a movie. But within a half hour, two beautiful and hilarious Asian boys who had never met each other before were having a naked pillow fight with me on my bed. And, and then the bed was actually two tiny beds squished together. So whenever an elbow or, or a knee would land in the crevice between the beds, the beds would split and we'd all end up in a pile on the floor. I very rarely, very rarely met people who, like me, tend to laugh a lot during sex. But all three of us did. And I've never had sex that was such pure fun. It was like a dream come true. So when they left, I thought, well, now I don't feel like a sex addict. When I hit the jackpot, do I? And I never would have hit the jackpot if I wasn't in the game. (laughs) What a seesaw of an existence. What you're hoping for is not what you get. Until you're hoping for something else, and then whammo! So, in retrospect, it only seems natural that the Wasteland Party was nothing, nothing like in the reviews and the pictures. It was just a loud, crowded techno dance. So, what had I expected? That a Bruce Lee lookalike was gonna tie me up with scalding hot licorice whips and hurl me into Harry Houdini's water torture tank and piss so many gallons of piss on me that 
On the verge of drowning in the amber waves, I finally see the blue and black clouds of my mind part and uncover the horribly beautiful truth buried under centuries of lies that, in a past life, I was Sacagawea. <laughs> yeah, something like that. But, like I said, it's just a goddamn dance party. After a half hour, I thought, okay, it's time for rest. Going to bed that night, I thought of my parents, who I love so dearly. And my parents fit a perfect stereotype, that of the completely monogamous. They were each other's first sweethearts in the 50s. They'd been married close to 55 years. And if you put a gun to my head, I would bet that neither of them has ever had sex with someone else. And I assume there is a unique intimacy in that exclusivity. On the other hand, I fit a stereotype too. I'm the promiscuous gay man. And I've always felt that for me, love and sex are not like a pie where you only have a finite number of slices to share. It's more like a fire. And the fire catches in one way when you share it with one person. And it catches in a completely different way when you share it with someone of a different chemistry. The universally popular idea that intimacy with one person is diminished or even defiled by your having intimacy with another person? Well, it just does not compute for me. But the polyamorous people I'd met since kink camp, I mean, they've got like one primary partner, two secondaries, or two primaries, one second, whatever it is, they've got intimacy and continuity. I mean, polyamory literally means lots of love. But for me lately, it had just meant Lots of sex. And that made me sad. But then I also felt gratitude that in pursuing all of that sex, I had such a profound experience with Zach and such a joyful experience with Alvin and Simon. And I lay there thinking, I can easily see myself remembering those two experiences decades from now. And that was the feeling that was kind of winning over in my heart when I was calling it a night. But then I couldn't sleep. There was a pain in my ass like a bee sting. The whole week, there'd been only one person poking around down there. It was that Pakistani guy with the Chipotle burrito penis. 
I remember it had been a hassle just getting the condom all the way on. That had been maybe 30 hours ago. But his size had clearly caused some distress down in there. Or maybe I was getting a hemorrhoid, or both. In any case, my rectum was electrified. I said, I can't believe I'm so in need of sleep. But I can't do it. Well, the next morning, I was waiting for my ride to the airport. I felt I had to get something out of my system, but I also felt backed up, like the buckets of pizza and M&Ms were finally wrecking havoc inside me. So, on the toilet, I pushed, and a searing, explosive fart made me jump off the toilet. It was so violent. Now my ass felt like I'd been shot down there. There was a hemorrhoid. And from the toilet paper, I could see it was bleeding. Then I realized I was also having a hard time peeing. When I got to my seat in the airplane, I found that for eight hours, I I was going to be sandwiched between two very large people. So I couldn't sleep. I went to the bathroom. And in the mirror, I looked as pale as my dirty undershirt and scared. Well, on the toilet again, an explosive, ripping fart and excruciating pain. And the toilet water was changing color from a billowing cloud of blood. I figured a movie, a movie could distract me. I'd never seen the film 10 from 1979, and I'm immediately fascinated (laughs) to see I've chosen a story where Dudley Moore is in his early 40s and having a midlife crisis because he wants to have sex with lots of people, but he's in a monogamous relationship with Julie Andrews. So Dudley spends the whole film pining for Bo Derek. She is the symbol of um, free love, you know, the archetypical swinger. And the most famous scene in the film is the climax, when Bo finally does want to have sex with Dudley. Uh, This is known as the bolero scene, because she puts on Ravel and explains that this is the music she likes to fuck to, because bolero seems to be about a situation growing more and more intense. But as they try to have sex, he starts asking questions like, why is it okay for you to do this when you have a boyfriend? And she justifies it terribly. It's deliberately written so that she sounds like a completely unscrupulous, soulless, directionless imbecile. And Dudley is so disgusted by her lack of moral character that he decides he doesn't really want to sleep with her after all. He returns to Julie Andrews and swears his eternal exclusivity to her for a happy Hollywood ending. Well, this movie pissed the hell out of me. How cowardly, how oversimplified, how unexploratory for them to have made the Boderic character someone totally unable 
to speak for polyamory. So now I'm just a bubbling stew. I'm furious at this attitude of moral superiority on this topic that so many people are just too lazy or too frightened to think through, to feel through, to test the waters of, to adventure into. Because it's easier to think of these things single-mindedly, black and white, one size fits all. Meanwhile, my own single-mindedness my overzealous pursuit of polyamory had obviously made me physically sick. Zach had encouraged me to go far. He meant get to know some fascinating kinky people. Not this. Well, for three days back in New York, I just kept telling myself, Kevin, this will go away. It'll go away soon. For God's sake, it's just a hemorrhoid. But I still couldn't sleep or pee or crap or even sit down in a chair as the pain and the bleeding just mounted. I finally made it to the doctor, and it was the most excruciating examination ever. And afterwards... He said, well, you have maybe the worst hemorrhoid I've ever seen. I almost started crying from relief. Then he said, but this hemorrhoid is so angry. I'm almost certain there's something exacerbating it. I mean... NSTD. I went numb. He said, Now, I gotta tell you, Kevin, all of your symptoms match up perfectly with chlamydia, and there is a different strain of chlamydia that recently started coming from Amsterdam. And unlike normal chlamydia, an unusual number of people can't take the medication it takes to wipe it out. So, the difference is, it can kill you. I began to feel like I was underwater. He said, Kevin, tell me the truth. You had unprotected sex over there? I said, no. I only had anal sex once, and we definitely used a condom. He said, oh, dear. See that? They don't work 100% of the time. You may have been one of the unlucky ones. I went home feeling like I was short-circuiting. Of course I'd known there are some STDs you can't be completely safe from. And the more partners you have, the higher the risk of getting them. I mean, I've, I've gone to an STD clinic every six months for the past 25 years. But the only STD I'd ever gotten was crabs. I'd come around to assuming I'd kind of mastered safe sex to a certain degree, or that I had a certain amount of resilience, a, a degree of immunity against 
some things. But now I just felt, you reap what you sow. Surely I had to reassess everything. But until I knew what I was really dealing with, I just had to try and try and try to keep my mind on work. So, Friday, about 5.30, I get a phone message from one of the doctor's partners. He says, Kevin, we don't have all the tests back, but you're clean so far. However... Some of the patterns we've seen seem similar to what you might have if the final test comes back positive. You might have herpes. We're not sure what kind. Just check back sometime next week. I began melting down. Part of me felt like I shouldn't spend the weekend reading up on herpes because I still didn't know about the test. But I learned there are eight different kinds of herpes, and there are different kinds within some of the different kinds. The one thing everyone seems to agree on is that, you know, especially now that we have Valtrex, herpes is, by and large, almost harmless. But the other thing everyone seems to agree on is that we should all be panicked by the thought of ever getting it. So the stigma just does not match the level of threat. The irony is like this. 25% of New Yorkers have it, but 90% of them don't know they have it because the symptoms are usually unnoticeable. So the people that know and are on Valtrex and take precautions and are honest about it are the people you need not be so worried about. But they're the ones who get stigmatized. So here I am imagining a future where I come out of the closet to a guy about the fact that I have herpes, and now he won't have sex with me because of it. But I'm the one who's being careful, and he's the one who's likely to have it, but doesn't know. I wrote this in an email to Zach. Basically, I think my sex life is history. From now on, I'm guessing I'll be having a tiny fraction of the sex I used to. I can't hide this. That goes against everything I am. So I can probably only have sex now with other people who are out about having herpes. And it seems that almost no one is. The next day, Zach called. He said, I need to see you. Now, with his schoolwork, Zach was always insanely busy, and his campus was like an hour and a half away. I could only see him at 11 p.m. on Monday night, but he insisted on dropping everything. He waved at me across 6th Avenue. I was thinking, he really does look like a holy man when he smiles. When I made it across, he gave me a bear hug that seemed to last forever. And when we sat down in a cafe, he said, It's just tragic. You were right at the beginning of this lifelong adventure. And then this. But the more clearly I laid it all out, 
the more relaxed he became. Finally, he said, Wait a minute. It sounds like you've got exactly what a friend of mine in Hong Kong has. Sounds like you've got herpes 2 in the butt. And that's the most manageable place to have it. See, herpes 2 can only live in one place. If it's in your butt, you don't need to worry about it ever spreading to your dick or mouth or whatever. So my friend, he thought his sex life was over when he got it. But then he got on this medication, never had an outbreak again. And that makes the chances of spreading it pretty much nil. And he makes a partner wear a condom on top of taking the Valtrex. It becomes like a non-issue. It was the first time I didn't buy what Zach was saying. Not because of him, but just because it sounded too good to be true. He said, I think guys will still have sex with you. Look at me. I'm into you. And I never had any intention of doing anything with that hairy ass. I said, thank you? The next day I went to the doctor for my results. Everything Zach had said was spot on. The doctor said, no, you can handle this quite easily. An emotional meltdown was unnecessary, but perhaps your psyche wanted you to re-examine your behavior. And so I began planning for the fast. I took a couple weeks to heal, and then I went for four weeks of no junk food, no marijuana, no sex, including masturbation. What I noticed was that without my familiar habits, I felt like a space had opened up inside, and I wanted to fill it by connecting more with Zach. But he was too busy with school now, and he'd made it very clear. We were just secondary partners. So... How could I continue into that transcendental sort of experience I'd had with him when he's not here? Now, I hadn't really prayed in a long while. I haven't considered myself a Catholic in decades. But with this desire for intimacy getting stronger within me, I kept finding myself wanting to talk to God, ask questions. And the one that came up the most was... How can I have a sex life that's surprising and adventurous and revolutionary, but not shallow and unhealthy and wasteful? And on the second Wednesday of the fast, I remembered there is a method that many people use to ask things of God and come away feeling they got a concrete answer. It's this ancient ceremony where you drink and then later vomit the juice of a psychoactive concoction called ayahuasca. And people say the typical ayahuasca participant starts the ceremony with a question and then in hallucination comes face to face with some entity that answers. So I found a ceremony happening not far from New York and coinciding with the end of my fast, being led by a Peruvian shaman. 
So on the train ride there, I kept doing these invocations in my head saying, I am here, Lord. I invite you in. I welcome your insight. Come be with me. So I got to this abandoned warehouse where this secret meeting was taking place. And there was one big room painted all white. And all the people were starting to sit lotus style on pillows around the perimeter. And everyone but me was wearing white and only white. And somehow, every woman looked like Joni Mitchell or Joan Baez. And the men were bearded and gangly and kind of dazed looking. Well, I knew the ceremony was supposed to start at nine. But about half past nine, people were still kind of lazily trickling in. And then another half hour went by. And another, and another, and another, and another. My back was aching. I asked uh, Joan Baez next to me, what time this thing was supposed to really start? And she gave me a huge, blissful smile. And she said, momentarily. I said, oh, thanks. I'm Kevin. And she said, round here, everyone calls me intimacy. I felt myself scooch away just a bit. Now, as each person came in, they started laying things out, things they'd brought on little prayer rugs right in front of them. There were bird feathers, bird wings, entire breastplates of birds, uh, animal hides, plants, trees, fossils, shells, incense, ashes, oils, herbs, salts, statues, rosaries, runes, rings, crystals, candles, mandalas, magnets, chalices, wands, tarot cards, gongs, chimes, shakers, tambourines, drums, scrolls, ponchos, tapestries. Until there was barely room to sit amongst the junk. I had only one thing on me. (laughs) A little scrap of paper that said, how can I have a sex life? That is surprising, adventurous, and revolutionary, but not shallow, unhealthy, and wasteful. That's what I was looking at when this drunken homeless man stumbled in. And then I realized, oh, it's the shaman. Now, Raphael was this tiny elf-like man, very dark-skinned, very dirty clothes, He took a seat against the wall like everyone else, and he started unloading like three giant shopping bags full of five times as many tchotchkes as anyone else. And he didn't speak so much as kind of mutter, and it was barely English. And the only way to know he'd finished making a point is that he'd often go, (laughs) so he'd say things like, um, I, anger. I, um, uh, get stuck. 
become like breathing? <laughs> and everyone would react as if what he had just said did not make no sense, but made so much sense. <laughs> they were in awe. Well, after he muttered words and phrases for maybe an hour and a half, he poured out cups of ayahuasca for us. Now, these were the size of the cups that you get with a bottle of cough medicine. So I thought, yeesh, this is a potent batch of this stuff. So I drank mine, sat back down, and waited to vomit. Well, an hour went by, and people sang songs and recited poems. I felt a slight headache, but that was all. I didn't vomit. And then Raphael said, I'm, I'm uh, cops. Now, also? <laughs> and everyone seemed to think this was a particularly solid insight until they realized he was just offering us more juice. Well, I drank a second cup, and I waited an hour, and people sang songs and recited poems. I still didn't vomit, and now even the headache was dissipating. And, you know, it occurred to me that when this whole story began, I had been trying not to vomit, but failed. Now I was trying to vomit, and again, failing. So... I pulled a Joni Mitchell aside by the bathroom and asked, Is it normal that after two cups and two hours, I don't feel anything? She said, Hmm. Well, if you're not on a raw vegan diet, the medicine probably doesn't approve because you have too much of a holocaust within you. So I thanked her for the tip and asked Raphael for a third cup. It was crystal clear. This was the weakest batch of ayahuasca ever fed to a pack of gullible hippies. I decided the best I could probably do was just drift off to sleep. And I wanted to dream about Zach. I wanted to see if I could get out of this silliness and get into him. And I awoke again, maybe an hour later, to a sound like in my face. I opened my eyes to see a, a fat, bug-eyed, bearded man shaking dirty feathers right over my nose. He bent down and he whispered to me, if you want to receive the energy, uncross your arms. These are the feathers of the whistling loon. When the sun came up, everyone was singing Cat Stevens, and I uh, snuck out the door. So, where did that leave me? Actually, feeling fine. You know, somehow I think that just... Writing that question down and having the intention to explore it 
was enough for the time being. I mean, how do I have a sex life that's adventurous but not unhealthy? Well, I had one clue. Alvin and Simon, they had had wit and joy. And Zach, he had all that, plus brilliance and guts and compassion. So, of course, there are Kairos moments ahead, but they won't likely happen with just anyone. Now, I'm looking more carefully for great hearts and minds. <laughs> you know, I once asked Zach how he steered clear of creepy people <laughs> in the BDSM scene. And he said, well, I spent like five or six weeks getting to know you. It's just not as interesting to have someone bowing at my feet if they'd bow at the feet of whoever happened to be in the neighborhood. <sighs> you know, ever since kink camp, I'd been saying to myself, I'm a seeker. <laughs> I'm a seeker. But in Amsterdam, I'd been more of an escaper. You know, I think the seeker is patient and he follows intuition to zero in on the magic amidst the mundanity. But the escaper, uh, he just runs from what bores him. You know, he might not even look before he leaps. Well, a few days later, I finally did dream about Zach. We were back in my bed when he was lying with me after our first time together. And it reminded me how, even though at this point in my life I'm polyamorous, or in normal speak, a slut, what I really want most is to get closer and closer to someone. In the dream, I see his eye again, right in front of mine, and beautifully black, like outer space. And I want to float into it like I've become so small again. I might just fit in. And so I try to float closer and become even smaller. It had been when I was on my knees in front of Zach that at first I'd felt that small feeling. Like when I was 10 years old and I sat on my bed in my room trying not to cry, trying to hold it back. I knew I liked the boy next door and I thought it made me awful through and through. I thought it made me someone who should not be loved. But there had been that 
great sadness in Zach's eyes in the first of the photos he'd sent me. Like the sadness of myself as a child. So that, bowing before him, I began to feel something else, something other than small, because my heart swelled to be showing him he was esteemed. In the dream, I remembered when I was, I believe, seven years old. I walked in a procession up the aisle on Good Friday. The priest had lain out an almost life-size crucifix propped up on the steps from the congregation to the altar. Everyone moved in a single file and took turns approaching the suffering Christ. They would bend so reverently to kiss his forehead or his cheek or his heart. But I approached undecided what to do and fell to my knees to kiss his feet. It was as surprising to me as to everyone who saw. Just a physical act, but it was Kairos. I was sharing compassion, love, really, with someone worthy of it. Sharing it with someone like me. Said we are not, we are not shining star. This I know, I never said we are. Though I've never been through hell like that, I've closed enough windows to know you can never look back. If you're lost in your home, or you're sinking like a stone, carry on. May your past be are your feet upon the ground and carry on, carry on, carry on. And that's all for this week, folks. This is fun 
Behind me now, they have a live concert from the 930 Club on NPR's All Songs Considered blog. can hear the whole concert there for free. Remember, you're just not very likely to find this kind of content anywhere else. <laughs> we are a very independent project, and we are very much in need of your financial support. Please go to risk-show.com to help us keep this going. And you can help us get the word out about Risk by visiting us on Facebook and Twitter at Risk Show and letting your friends know about us there. Uh, leaving a comment on iTunes. Please tweet to places like Entertainment Weekly or the New York Times or Rolling Stone. Let them know they should review Risk. Don't forget to buy our all-star episodes in our shop and... Remember the storystudio.org. We teach two-day workshops, nine-week workshops, four-week workshops, corporate workshops, and one-on-one -on -one storytelling training uh, in person or online via Skype. That's at the storystudio.org. Always play it safe in the bedroom, folks. <laughs> Other than that, today's the day. Take a risk. Thank you.